fairy tales, children's stories about magical and imaginary beings and lands, often the first lens we give young minds to view the world they live in. Many assume these are fictional stories to be taken lightly, but what if there is more to them? This is a podcast where we'll tell you some myths and tales that you thought you knew, and we'll show you how they are connected to real-life crimes today. This is Scary Tales, where the stories of your childhood meet real-life horror. We'll discuss how the light and happy tales of youth actually have a darker history to them. We'll also discuss true crime today and some of the eerie connections they have to the myths and legends of yesterday. Tune in for a new tale every other Tuesday. You can find us on Spotify, Apple, and anywhere you stream your podcast. Welcome back. It's been a minute. It has been. Our girl Lacey had her wisdom teeth removed. I did. And you, you, you can't quite talk or you, snack easily you can and let that. me tell you i got them out on a friday and i thought piece of cake i'll go back to work on monday went to work on monday started walking around talking to patients and blood just kept filling up in my mouth and i was like yeah it's too soon yeah it's like it's a process that it's not horrible unless you push it yeah and then it can get real bad real fast right so we didn't we didn't podcast and we didn't snack and we've been sad and we've been missing everybody and but we're back maybe you missed us i hope so but this episode, we had planned to do it before the 4th of July and then, you know, wisdom teeth. But we're still going to be 4th of July themed. Yeah, we'll still be patriotic. And mm-hmm. uh, I I figured maybe people wouldn't listen, like, on 4th of July like that. Because oh, they were too you know, busy. they were all busy doing their holiday mm-hmm. stuff. So I think it's fine. So we'll do it now. Today, I'm sure you saw the title. We're talking about the one and only Uncle Sam, the legend of Uncle Sam. Is he a legend? I think, he's, I think he's kind of like American folklore figure yeah. type thing. Like mm-hmm. he's not, you know, not like a fairy tale, but kind of that American folk tale, if you will. Mm-hmm. And then we'll talk about a different Sam. Yes, the, the one lunch. and only. Yeah, after lunch. After lunch. <laughs> <laughs> our snack. Okay, it's I think currently I, like I think six p.m. I, but I also think I said that because our snack break, the box is so big, it uh-huh. could be like a full meal. It could be. It could. Um, so Uncle Sam, he has a story behind him. He does. So let me tell you a little bit about him. Tell me. On September 7th, 1813, the United States got its nickname Uncle Sam, um, U.S. United mm-hmm. States, U.S. Mm-hmm. Uncle mm-hmm. Sam. So the initials are the same. Makes sense. But the name is also linked to a real person named Samuel Wilson, who was a meat packer from Troy, New York, which we'll continue to talk about New York later. Yes, this is all just I know, it all fits. Uh, So he was a meat packer from New York, and he supplied barrels of beef to the United States Army during the War of 1812. Mm -hmm. What do you think the difference between a meat packer and like a butcher is? I don't know. You're just packing meat in the box. I guess it's already chopped up for him at that point. Your your only job is literally to get the meat and put it in a box. I guess guess so. We could have done that for our snack break, just like gotten one of those meat boxes. Have you seen those, like those butcher boxes? Mm -hmm. Next time. We also tend to not do like we we go more sweet i don't eat beef or pork so so that wouldn't work out well yeah samuel wilson he also served in the american revolution at the age of 15 which kind of blows my mind yeah they were young back then when they went yeah here's a gun fight for your country see you later he was born in massachusetts and then after the war he settled in the town of troy new york where he lived with his brother uh, ebenezer i love that name we need to bring that name back uh, and they began the began the firm 
E and S Wilson, which was a meatpacking facility. So E for Ebenezer and S for Samuel. So they mm-hmm. started their started their own enterprise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Samuel was known to be a, like a really awesome guy. He was very fair. He was very reliable. He was very honest, very patriotic, and devoted to his country. Um, everyone liked him, like well liked by the local residents. So people began to refer to him as Uncle Sam. He was just everybody's uncle. Yeah, that uncle that that wasn't anybody's uncle, but every was so nice to everybody that mm-hmm. everybody loved him. Did mm-hmm. you have someone that you called uncle that wasn't really your uncle? Like, I had an aunt and uncle that I called Aunt Sally and Uncle Richard, but they weren't mm-hmm. my aunt and uncle. No, not that I can think of. I, I, I kind of felt like that was a Southern thing, but mm-hmm. this is this takes place in New York, so I don't know. Then, another war later, during the War of 1812, the demand for meat supply for the troops was very needed. This is when a lot of supplies were down and everybody was trying to kind of, like, ration things out. Mm-hmm. The Secretary of War, William Eustace made a contract with Albert Anderson Jr. of New York City to supply and issue all the rations necessary for the United States forces in New York and New Jersey for one year. That's a lot of meat for one year. That is a lot, yeah. Anderson ran an advertisement on October 6, 1813, looking to fill the contract. So he was looking for some help with it. Mm -hmm. So the Wilson brothers put in a bid and for the contract and they ended up winning so this contract was to fill 2,000 barrels of pork and 3,000 barrels of beef for one year that's a lot there's no there's no even there's not an option for chicken no there's not i don't Mm. know why i don't know if if like red meat salmonella stayed better for i don't know if they were able to Mm. better preserve it i don't know interesting Because they were situated on the Hudson River, their location made it ideal to uh, ship and receive animals and ship products out. They were just... They just had it made. Yeah, they had a good spot for transporting things. So as the story goes, Wilson and Elbert Anderson, so Wilson's our Uncle Sam, Mm -hmm. uh, the contractor he supplied, they stamped all of their beef and their pork barrels with the initials EA-US. So the EA was for Albert Anderson. The U.S. was shorthand for United States, but the workers began to joke that it stood for Uncle Sam Mm -hmm. because that's what he was known for. That's what Wilson, you know, he was locally known as Uncle Sam. So then before long, the soldiers had helped bring the term into, like, the soldiers started using that too. So it wasn't just, like, the the business side of it that was joking about Uncle Sam. It was the soldier side that started using that is a nickname for the United States. Mm-hmm. Sam Wilson, the, his whole story was then like popularized or made kind of like public in an 1830 article for the New York Gazette. It was uh, later made like public record in 1961 when the Congress passed a resolution acknowledging Wilson as the progenitor. Quote. I'm, this is a quote: progenitor of America's national symbol of Uncle Sam. And they made quote. it a. I made it official. Yeah, they made it kind of this like. They were like America thing. needs yeah. a, a mascot. They do. He's, he is kind of the like mascot of him and the bald eagle. Yeah, mm-hmm. true. We need we need a poster of like a, of Uncle Sam with a bald eagle on his shoulder. Mm-hmm. Or t shirt. Or t shirt. Yeah, put that on t shirt. The local newspaper uh, picked up a story, and Uncle Sam just kept getting more and more like widespread. Mm-hmm. Everybody knew who it was. Everybody knew the nickname. Um, so he just kind of like 
I mean, like you said, kind of became the like mascot for the U.S. federal America. government. America, yeah, back Uncle to back Sam. World War champs. Yep. <laughs> say Na- say World War five times fast. World War World what? No, that you that wasn't even twice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Good job. Nailed it. Uh, this his image. So, and I don't know. I we didn't really the image we're talking about. I don't really feel like we need to explain it, but mm-hmm. I feel like you all know this older man white hair he's got all red white and blue on mm-hmm. you know red kind of bow tie stars and stripes on his hat most of the time he's pointing at the camera like that's like the most popular one mm-hmm. this image was said to be inspired by yankee doodle a british inspired nickname for the american colonials yes i can't then <laughs> do you hear the cat <laughs> They're like in a in a fight and just yelling at the top of their lungs. So sorry. They're just really patriotic. Yeah. So oh, Reagan. <laughs> we just hope he stops. If not, I'll have to get up. It's fine. <laughs> Is that going to come across on the sound? Yeah, absolutely, it will. <laughs> sorry, sorry, it's art. He was just so he was so patriotic. He's, he's, he's named after Ronald Reagan, the U.S. So. president. So he just really wants to give his input. Right. Um. So we were going to tell you a little bit about Yankee Doodle. Basically, Yankee Doodle is kind of like the the British ver- view of us, I guess. It was, of, mm-hmm, yeah, but of, we turned it around. Right. So mm-hmm. then it ended up, the Americans took a joke about ourselves and mm-hmm. tried to turn it into like something positive. So Yankee Doodle, which is, again, not, you know, talking about American folklore. It's not like a, a fairy tale, but it is like one of those, when you say Yankee Doodle, everybody starts going... Everybody starts singing. Okay. Everybody starts singing the song. Yeah, yeah. Let me, we're gonna pause we're gonna, five seconds and, and be right back. I'm gonna go kill a cat, and I'll be right back. <laughs> back. I opened the door, and Reagan was sitting at the door, and he was like, mm-hmm. and made this horrible sound, and I was like, Whoa. and I went to his food bowl, and his food bowl was empty. So food bowl's empty. Can't blame him. You get hangry. There's a lot of things we have to do before we can sit down and start recording. And I have to put the dogs up, or you can hear their nails clipping across the floor. I have to put the cats out. Well, so apparently have to feed the cat. So there, anyway, sorry, Yankee Doodle. We're back. Yankee Doodle, which everybody, I feel like, knows at least a couple lines of the song, but we'll tell mm-hmm. you a little bit of the, the story behind the song, and then I'll let Lacey, since she's our in-house singer, oh. actually at least tell you some of the lyrics. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll convince her to sing them by the time we get there. She won't. I sh- maybe. I have been singing. I, have, I don't know why. I've just been like stuck on Randy Travis lately. I'm just singing Randy Travis at the top of my lungs. It's because I came across a TikTok. He had a massive stroke. Oh, and I he has a TikTok, that. and like, and it's just so sad. Anyway, what he he had a stroke during the TikTok? No. Okay. But after, and it's just sad and yikes. Just a bunch of Randy Travis in my mind going through right now. Well, maybe we'll replace maybe. it with Yankee Doodle. Maybe. So the first version of Yankee Doodle seems to have been written by a British Army physician named Dr. Richard Shuckberg during the French and Indian War when King George III sent British troops to protect American colonists. So it was kind of a piece of satire. It was this satiric look at New England's quote-unquote Yankees. Mm -hmm. The song then grew in popularity because it was a bop. Mm Mm-hmm. And was sung by British soldiers that were poking fun of American colonists that they had been sent to protect. So I imagine that like these British soldiers are singing these songs about these like dumb Americans, and mm-hmm. the Americans probably have no idea what they're talking about. Yeah, I don't know. Then by this by the 1770s, a quote unquote Yankee had become another name for an American colonist, while a doodle was a 
Dutch was Dutch for a fool or a simpleton. So you put Yankee Doodle together, and mm. it's that dumb American. Yeah, that American idiot. Mm-hmm. That was a Green Day song, wasn't it? American idiot. Maybe they were. Maybe they were inspired by Yankee Doodle. Many of these British that were serving in the colonies believed that colonists were trying to be as cultured as Europeans, but were like failing horribly. So they were like, you'll never be us. I felt like they weren't, though. What I know about like early Americans, they were like rough and tumble. Rough and what is word? What am I trying to say there? I don't know. Rough and tough. No, that's not the word I was going for, but we'll go with it. And like had raccoon hats and like Davy Crockett style. mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if this was just like what it looked like from like an outsider's perspective mm-hmm. that they thought that we were trying to act like them. Um, but I don't know. So there is, it was all just mockery. Uh, so for, we'll do the first. You can see this in the first verse of the song. So, for example, in the last line, quote unquote, stuck a feather in his hat and called it macaroni. Mm hmm always a bizarre song or right. line to me mm-hmm. never that's because i never i was just picturing the good old macaroni uh, right that i just ate for dinner <laughs> right you're like we did arts and crafts with like macaroni noodles when mm-hmm. we were younger so maybe this was like a crafty thing mm-hmm. put it up there for a snack put it in the brain right. of your hat for a snack mm-hmm. break later uh but no apparently macaroni was a term describing men who went to extremes to like look sophisticated or stylish who would have thought so if you call somebody a macaroni you're like making fun of they think they're fancy mm-hmm. so anyway well all right now you know the <laughs> the line that always threw me off the most as a kid Well, these lines are about to really throw you off so but i was about to say i think these lines i don't i don't know any i don't remember any of this part of the song no i don't think this is so this think, was their version okay because i was about to say we turned it around you don't or no, you don't we, know you don't know yeah. like i feel like everyone knows like those first few lines and mm-hmm. then that's it is that f frame or f frame I don't know. I'm no, I don't know Another how to pronounce Ephraim? that name. But anyways, part of the lyrics go, Brother Ephraim sold his cow and bought him a commission. And then he went to Canada to fight for the nation. That's a questionable rhyme. But when Ephraim, he came home, he proved an er- errant coward. He wouldn't fight the Frenchman there for fear of being devoured. Sheep's head and vinegar, buttermilk and tansy. Boston is a Yankee town. Sing hey, doodle dandy. And then another vis- version the British liked singing went, Yankee Doodles come to town for to buy a firelock, whatever that is, and we will tar and feather him, and so will we John Hancock. I wonder if a firelock is a gun. Could be. Sounds I like guess. it. I don't know. And then John Hancock from uh, what? What's he got to do with anything? I don't know, but they apparently didn't like him. All right. Well. Uh, so. Mm-hmm. Honestly, if I had been an American, I probably wouldn't have done. They were making fun of me because I was like, "That's." I was just like, "Who's F from F frame? <laughs> What's a firelock? What's a firelock? What do you make with sheep's head and vinegar?" I know that's the the recipe there in the middle kind of threw mm. me off, but so they made fun of us, and then I think eventually, like we were saying, U.S. kind of takes right. it and turns it into a patriotic song. So at some point, the you know the Americans and the British stopped getting along, and they went to battle with one another, and I think that's where this next part comes in. Right. So at Yorktown, Brit- the British marched out to surrender, and they were marching with their heads turned towards the French troops, mm-hmm. which I guess they were trying to pretend the Americans didn't exist, or they mm-hmm. were t- angled more towards who they respected and turning their backs on who they didn't. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It must be like a wartime you know, middle finger, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Marquis de Lafayette, 
which just makes me think of the Hamilton song. The uh, commander of one of the American forces was outraged, very upset by this. Um, he ordered his band to play Yankee Doodle. Mm-hmm. He's like, I'll show you. He's like, oh, yeah? Watch this. So drums going, the all the rifles, the musicians, they all like just went hard on this song. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then every British head like jerks around and... They didn't look the Americans in the right. eye. They're just like jamming to Yankee Doodle. Because yeah. we're just a bunch of Yankee Doodles. Yeah. So they were like, take that. Mm-hmm. I also just feel like that would have been a funny like I would like, I kind of get chills. You know me. Because I said the only things that make me I cry know. are terrorists and yeah, and what was the other one? <laughs> Old Anim- people. Well, and by terrorists, I meant Animals. dying terror. Right. Ter- patriotism. Yeah. Yeah. If you listen to another. Yeah. Um, so that just like gets me in the feels. Oh, I know. I think that would have been funny to witness mm-hmm. in person. So fast forward a little bit. In the late 1860s and 1870s, a political cartoonist, Thomas Nast, who we've talked, talked about before. about him before. Yeah. Um, in our Santa Claus episode, he began to uh, popularize the image of Uncle Sam. So, you know, he's a drawing the, all these caricatures of, of Uncle Sam. Mm-hmm. He continued to, like, keep evolving the image, eventually giving Uncle Sam that big white beard, the stars and stripes suit that are all associated with him. Mm-hmm. So he's the guy who made it famous. We talked about him in our Santa Claus episode because he was also the one who is credited with the modern image of Santa Claus. Gave him a big white beard, Mm -hmm. the big belly. He's doing all the things. He is because he also came up with the donkey as the symbol for the Democratic Party and the elephant as a symbol for the Republicans. I see. So good for him. Mm -hmm. Any, Any popular image that you know of that is related to like American folklore history it's probably it's Thomas probably Nast, not, who's yeah. not, who's not, uh, he's German. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> it's kind of funny. Sure. Uh, his most, probably the most famous image of Uncle Sam, though, was created by a different artist named James Montgomery Flagg. In Flagg's version, Uncle Sam wears a, the one of the super tall top hats, the big blue jacket, and the, this is the one where he's pointing, like, straight ahead at the mm-hmm. viewer, like, breaking I that, you. yeah, breaking that fourth wall, like talking straight to the person looking at them uh that whole i want you for the u.s army that poster with the portrait of uncle sam was used as a recruiting poster for world war one uh the image that's the image that became like immensely popular uh everybody knows that every yeah that's the one that when you say uncle sam that comes to mind Mm -hmm. the it was first used on the cover of leslie's weekly in july 1916 way back when yeah with the title what are you doing for preparedness which was again kind of that propaganda Mm -hmm. poster um and then the poster itself was distributed and like reused numerous times with different captions so they just kept giving him like Mm -hmm. different quotes and stuff even till today you see it everywhere you do and i think too like you know you see some like satirical versions of it or you see the same style picture but it's a different person's face i mean Mm -hmm. they've just it's become like a pop culture icon thing eventually samuel wilson died at age 88 in 1854 so that was that's really old for back then Right, and I was just thinking, like, numbers-wise, I mean, he died in 1854, but his image was still being used in 19, like, in 1916 for the war. So, like, his image obviously, like, surpassed his age. Like, mm-hmm. he didn't get to see that poster, yeah. which is kind of crazy to me. But he was buried next to his wife, Betsy Mann, in the Oakwood Cemetery in Troy, New York, um, which is the town, the town, like, now calls itself the home of Uncle Sam. 
That's it. I picture Troy, New York, to be like a little smaller town. I don't mm-hmm. know. Could be. Like he's know. like this, this small kind of small town boy that was nice mm-hmm. to everybody. He fought in the wars. Packed a bunch of meat. Packed meat. Everybody's uncle. Like everybody mm-hmm. loved him. And then ends up being this like. America's mascot. America's mascot. And that's Uncle Sam. That's Uncle Sam. And a, ni- a little bit a of nice Yankee guy. Dinner. Yeah. We're well, about to talk about a not so nice guy. Yeah. Yeah. Also from New York. Uh-huh. So that's what that's why I guess I'm picturing like this Troy, New York, this you've got this nice guy from a smaller mm-hmm. town and then you have this not so nice guy. He's not nice at ter- all. That terrorizes the town. He's not nice at all. And we're gonna get to him after our snack break. See you in a second. <laughs> break it's a friggin snack i'm very excited about our snack break today here's a personal connection for this for me so Mm -hmm. obviously when we were talking about new york and both of our both parts of our story come from new york my aunt lives in new york and she was super excited about this and she sent us snacks from new york so Mm -hmm. um shout out to my aunt for sending this to us she um I'm pulling up a text message from her because she said that uh, she was like, she said, I can say it's sponsored by my aunt who says New York is back and people should come visit. There we go. Was it ever gone? No, I think COVID like obviously hurt hurt New York a lot. And so, but you know, things are finally like back to normal Mm -hmm. and or more, more so normal. We love New York. Dave Mm -hmm. and I have been in New York a bunch. We love New York. And we have, I think we've been to this place, which I'll tell you about. But this is a place called uh, Zabar's. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but I think so. Uh, it's a kind of this grocery store, like old school classic grocery store. You can get the bagels, the famous bagels. You can get the locks that has, it's the salmon on there. Mm-hmm. You can go any day of the year. It is open seven days a week. It is open 365 days a year. What, like owls? Downtown. Yeah, I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. it is a like... It's been there for forever. It is a classic establishment. Uh, this was uh, has been going on ever since 1934. Mm-hmm. They've got their storefront at 80th and Broadway, which they've grown it from a storefront. It to sounds almost, like it. They've grown it from a storefront to almost a whole wide city block. On what? Well, dang. Yeah. Have to go so there. it's it's huge. It um, reaches every corner of the country. It's family owned still. Love that. Uh, independent business. It's got third generation of original employees serving third generations of original customers. That's deep. And, and I think that's like a very like New York thing, mm-hmm. like a very long standing tradition. Down and- yeah. Uh, so. We have lots of different snacks for you, so I'm just gonna pull these out of here, and if whichever one you want to try, you you grab one and try a bite. Okay. Does that sound good? Uh huh. Okay. So we've got uh, almondina, the original almond biscuit. Uh huh. Family recipe since 1929. We've got a little cookie that says "I love New York." Mm-hmm. Classic. Classic. This one I'm excited about. It's heavy. It's heavy. Uh, chocolate babka. So it's like mm-hmm. a big bread loaf that's got chocolatey goodness all throughout it uh-huh, uh-huh also when i opened this box it just smelled like cinnamon and um it just smelled delicious we have raspberry rugelash okay i know what i want you already know it. i got one more thing mm-hmm. Hang on. that's what i want the, i knew i see it the first the last thing i'm pulling out yeah 
Okay, and then the last thing is cinnamon rougalash. That's what I want. I don't know what a rougalash is, but I like cinnamon. Here we go. This is the cinnamon rougalash, and I can already smell that it's going to be great. It does smell good. I'm going to try the babka. Tastes like a cinnamon roll. Cinnamon bread. It does. It looks good. That's nice. Um, 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10 for the rougalash. Okay, I wanted to try a little bite of this um, chocolate babka. Mm -hmm. Babka's always in, like, bread baking, like... Mm-hmm. Cook, I think it's a babka. No, no words. Gosh, that's good. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna finish this off with a nice Coke Zero. That's so good. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Aunt Hannah's aunt. Aunt, well, Aunt Pap. I call her Aunt Papa. Aunt Papa. Yeah. But you can find her on. Um, I'm actually. I'm gonna. I'm gonna give her a little Instagram shout out. Uh, you can find her on Instagram. Her name's Sydney Stone. Uh, you can find her on Instagram at stylophile s-t-y-l-a-p-h-i-l-e mm-hmm. uh she's she does a lot of um like vintage style like she sells a lot of vintage clothes online love that so she's very stylish and she also has very good taste in snacks we love that so we do love that she also when we were um talking about our second part which we're about to do mm-hmm. I'll, I'll interject every now and then with some um New York facts that she mm-hmm. sent me when we talked about the Love true that. crime that we're doing today. Love that. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much. And thank you, Zabars, for being a New York staple. There you go. And if you ever visit New York, head over there. You can get the classic bagel. You can get some of the rougalash. You can get the babka. Anything you want. You Honestly, you can probably get a little bit of anything mm-hmm. you want. Um, another classic staple in the world of true crime is the son of sam and we're going to talk about him after the break thanks the son of sam another classic new york legend many i'm sure a lot of people have heard of this story or know of it but we're gonna talk about it in some good details so son of sam uh his name was david berkowitz and he was known obviously as the son of sam or the point forty four caliber killer i'd never heard of him as that but i think he start didn't he like i think that was his very first one. Oh, okay because I, I think that was like before they knew who he was mm-hmm. and you know you yeah. don't have a whole lot to go off of right so you just name it whatever random thing you find at the scene mm-hmm. of the crime it, the slash slinging slasher and you know where that's from it's right. from spongebob <laughs> i don't know it just... why do we reference spongebob on at least every episode i don't know um he was an american ser- serial killer uh, david berkowitz not SpongeBob, not spongebob who was murder who murdered six people in new york from 1976 to 1977 so a short a short mm-hmm. little reign of terror of people, yeah and he honestly the there were other victims that survived, so it could have been more, but... Yeah, I think that was just the number of how many people he killed. There mm-hmm. were other people who he, like, just made Literally maimed. shot in the head, and they lived. Like, multiple people. I don't I, get that. I don't either. If someone shot me in the toe, I would die, just knowing uh, it, me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And just the fact that he had people who survived his attacks, and they still it still took him a long time to catch him. Where mm-hmm. it's like, you have people who have seen him. Right. Anyway. Berkowitz was born Richard David Falco in Brooklyn, New York on June 1st, 1953. His mother, Betty Broder, was married to a man named Tony Falco, who she also had a daughter with. Her name was Rosalind. However, she had a little 
a little side piece. Um, she had an affair with a man named Joseph Kleinman, and she got pregnant. And when Joseph Kleinman found out she was pregnant, he told her to get rid of the baby. So a few days after his birth, Richard David Falco was adopted by Nathan and Pearl Berkowitz, who they were a Jewish couple. And for whatever reason, they reversed the baby's first and middle name. So now we have David Richard Berkowitz. <laughs> I, I guess they just, just changed wanted, it around. Well, I guess they so, wanted to have their own like yeah involvement in naming him kind of without totally uprooting him. Sure. I don't know. Nathan Berkowitz, his father, owned a hardware store which occupied much of his time, not leaving a lot of time for he and his adopted son to bond. However, uh, David Berkowitz and his mother were very, very close. Um, that was their only child, obviously. And a lot of time, uh, I was going to say being an only child, you're an only child, but you know the... No, I, I, I am. I feel like I'm, I'm I hopefully, if, I feel like I'm not the you're stereotypical... You're a well-rounded only, only child, child yeah. yeah. But I am, it, I am super close to my, my parents. Mm-hmm. But and some would say only child sometimes get too much leniency. Yeah, and I wonder if, to me, it sounds like his mom, like, really wanted a kid, maybe his dad, you know, mm-hmm. maybe one parent wanted more than the other, and so she was just so excited to finally have mm-hmm. a kid that she maybe let him... Just smothered him with love. Yeah, maybe let him get away with too much. From all accounts, David led a troubled childhood. Big surprise there. He was said to have had an above-average intelligence, also huge surprise there, but he lost interest in learning at an early age and had a reputation as being the neighborhood bully. I wonder if he was just, like, bored at school because he, was, Cause he was already too, knew everything. Too easy it was too for easy for mm-hmm. Yeah. When he was seven years old, he was hit by a car and suffered a head injury, and we all, everybody knows about brain injuries. I, I mean, already his story right there, you've got mm-hmm. three, like whammies whammies right off the bat yeah that'll get you after this he started getting into petty larceny and pyromania he would set bugs on fire and then he advanced to smaller buildings in the neighborhood (laughs) like start with the smallest thing you can buy and then smaller buildings god there goes a cat again we're just gonna ignore it When he was 14, unfortunately, his adoptive mother, Pearl, died of breast cancer, and this was in 1967, and out of the two parents, he was definitely closer to Pearl, and he didn't get along with the new woman that his father later married. So so that's almost two more whammies. Mm -hmm. Your adopted mother died, and Mm -hmm, then the mm -hmm. new woman you don't get along with. Right. But like... Bad stepmother to the adopted mother who adopted you after your birth mother mm -hmm. had to give you away. Right. I, I get it. I, I know. But like some. I know. It, he's not. There was no ever. There was no ever. There was never any allegations of like sexual abuse or physical yeah. abuse. So the way he turned out, he just. I was about to say, it's a horrible circumstance for anyone to be involved in. But it obviously could have been worse. And there are examples of people who had stories like this who didn't end up being a serial killer. Mm-hmm. In 1971, Berkowitz joined the U.S. Army and was active until about 1974. I saw where he was honorably discharged. I didn't say what for, but... So he must have gotten hurt or something, yeah. I guess. I he know. served in South Korea, where he excelled as a proficient marksman, which will come in handy for him later. Um, also, while he was in Korea, they said he just did lots of drugs. Maybe that's where we... That was just the tip of the... I mean, the straw I that know. broke the camel's yeah. back. And so maybe those uh, Uncle Sam posters got to him. Mm-hmm. All those Uncle Sam oh, right. posters say, we want you. And then he yep. joins up. Yep. All right. We're going to go on another five-minute break. I'm going <laughs> to do something with the cat, and we'll be right back. <laughs> we had to go fix the cat, so. 
I did. I, got, I, I threw I got him back into the snack break. I did. I threw him um, into our room. I didn't throw him. It sounds like we're torturing him or not. My cats are very well loved, but um, I put him in our room and I locked the door. And I wouldn't be surprised if he found his way out. So here we are. Where were we? Try again. Uh-huh. Here we go. So while he um, was in the army, he saved up a lot of money and he was able to rent an apartment in the Bronx and he even attended Bronx Community College. I guess wonder, he was like, I we'll try this made, again. I wonder what he majored in. Uh, you know, I didn't say. Yeah. Just, just, yeah. Like, um, what are the bug people called? What's that word? Oh, I don't know. No, he probably, probably studied bugs. Probably did. To support himself, he worked several odd jobs, including mail sorter, security officer, and cab driver. Just imagine having... This story could have been a lot yeah, like darker if uh-huh. he had stuck with the cab driver and added the mm-hmm, serial mm-hmm. killer but thing. But just imagine, like, he could have been your aunt. Well, if your aunt was older, he could have been her cab driver. I know. Around this time, he was able to get in touch with his birth mother and half-sister, but after his mom told him that he had been given up for adoption at the request of his father, he was like, nah, screw you, I'm out of here. So he uh, That hurt him. Mm-hmm. He reportedly never uh, spoke to them again. Because it didn't seem like it was like they had a family, so it uh-huh. wasn't like that they couldn't take care of a family. Yeah. It was that... Well, you kept Rosalind, He was, he was a product of a affair. Mm-hmm. So I imagine that would be a little bit traumatizing. Yes. In 1974, David's fascination with fire resurfaced. He, he really amped things up here, and he set more than 1,500 fires around New York City. How he didn't go to jail for this, I, I, don't, I, don't, I, know. Know. I don't understand that either. He wrote about the, setting these fires in his journal and called himself the Phantom of the Bronx. Ooh. Yeah, if you're already giving yourself like, If you have to give nicknames, yourself a nickname. Yeah. yeah. In 1975, his new obsession was with the occult, so... We see where this is heading. He um, enjoyed reading the Satanic Bible, and he became convinced that he was being controlled by evil spirits. If you, you're scared of that, you probably shouldn't get into the Satan. I don't know. Yeah. In late November 1975, David wrote a letter to his father that would be foreshadowing. It said... He, he documented a lot of stuff. He loved to there, write. There, yeah. Mm-hmm. There are some letters that... Oh, yeah. We're going to get to the... Got the whole thing. I'll read you the whole letter. <laughs> He said to his father, it's cold and gloomy here in New York, but that's okay because the weather fits my mood. Gloomy. Dad, the world is getting dark now. What do you, like, I wonder how his dad intervened because that's terrifying. Yeah, what do you think his dad said back to that? Cheer up, son. The sun will come out tomorrow. Right. A month later, on the night of Christmas Eve, he... I guess was just bored sitting around the house, so he picked up a hunting knife and went out on the streets of New York to hunt for his first victim. And typically, he didn't use a knife, so I guess he tried this out on the first couple, and he was like, that didn't work, so we switched to the .44 caliber. But he found a woman coming out of a grocery store and stabbed her several times before she ended up fleeing. They never figured out who this woman was, but, you know, he later admitted to it. Later, when he was being interviewed by a psychologist, he said that he didn't understand why she screamed so much. You ever been stabbed? David? I just. What do you think the? I've never think, been stabbed, but. What do you think the psychologist did when, when he said that? They were like, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay. lock him away. Yep. He then the same night came across a 15-year-old by the name of Michelle Foreman, who he stabbed six times, and she was able to escape and make a recovery at the hospital. I guess whatever description she gave didn't help catch him because we we continue on with these shenanigans. 
In January of 1976, David relocated from the Bronx to a rental home in Yonkers. Have you ever been to Yonkers? I've driven through Yonkers. I, I thought that that was like a I didn't realize it was an actual place. Yeah. So my with, with my aunt and uncle living in New York, they've given us like the whole New York mm-hmm. tour thing. My aunt actually texted me when we when she found out we were doing this story and was like, "Do you want me to like?" She like sent me a video like driving past his apartment in like mm-hmm. like where he lived in in yeah New York and was like, "There, he, this mm-hmm. is where they found him, or this is where he lived, or this is mm-hmm. where he killed this person," which is kind of like bizarre to me to be able to like see it there. Yeah, New York has everything. It does. The landlord of this new place he lived owned a German shepherd who reportedly barked a lot. Um, that's, that's what dogs, what do. dogs do. David said that the dog was possessed and telling him that he needed to kill people. According to Berkowitz, the evil spirits were, te- were telling him that if he killed a girl, she would be possessed, you know, to do the devil's work. But after one year, he could have the girl to himself. I guess it didn't matter that... She was dead. I don't know how that works. Maybe she came back to life. I'm not sure of the logic there. We, or if we, there haven't, is we haven't read a lot of the occult manuscripts. Mm-hmm. so That's true. I'm maybe, not up to date on this. Maybe he mechanic. knew yeah. how that would work. Around this time, a lot of dead dogs were showing up around the area as well, which is pisses me off. But He moved again to 35 Pine Street in Yonkers. In this place, he had a new neighbor named... Sam Carr. Yeah, there's another Sam for there you. There it is. This is the Sam. Sam had a black lab named Harvey, and there's pictures of him, and he's freaking adorable. David hated this dog as well, no surprise, and attempted to kill Harvey with a Molotov cocktail, so like a, a bomb thing. I guess it didn't go off. So, and also, how do you know how to make bombs? Uh, that somehow didn't work, so he ended up shooting Harvey. And everything I said, I don't think Harvey died. I think he recovered, but he was, you know, re- really badly injured, but David later said that he believed Sam Carr was possessed by a demon and that the son of Sam was the son of that demon. So that's where we get the the son of Sam. Uh, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Still not sure about the logic behind that Uh, one, but okay. In May of 1976, David drove to Florida to visit his dad, and on his way back, he drove to Texas to visit a friend from the Army. He spent a few weeks with his friend and when he was going back to new york he kind of acted like he was nervous about the long drive by himself and he asked billy for a gun for protection so his friend bought him a .44 caliber revolver and three boxes of ammo because i guess it was harder to get a gun in new york than it would be in texas and i think in texas you have to have a Mm -hmm. certain license to get it yeah so his friend bought it for Mm -hmm. him because he didn't have that so like no one knew he had this gun Mm -hmm. The weird thing is, though, the strange thing is, is he already owned a bunch of guns. Because when they went through his apartment, they found all kinds of rifles and things. So I don't know. So I wonder if those were registered in his name. And so he was trying to use one that wasn't. He was trying to outsmart him. He was. I mean, he he makes some. He says and does some dumb stuff. But he also is smart enough to be, like, sadistic. Mm Mm-hmm. The first shooting attributed to the son of Sam occurred in the Pelham Bay area of the Bronx, at about 1.10 a.m. on July 29, 1976, Donna Laria, who was an 18-year-old emergency medical technician, and her friend, Jody Valenti, who was a 19-year-old nurse, which I guess nurses could be younger I back know, then. I that's so young. Really young. They were sitting in uh, Valenti's double-parked Oldsmobile, and they were discussing their evening at, they had just gone to this new disco, 
And one thing I saw was that Donna's dad came by and um, told her, hey, it's getting late. Like, you need to come in. Mm -hmm. And right after he went in and closed the door, that's when he heard the, the guns gun go off. So Donna opened the car to leave, get out of the car, and noticed a man quickly approaching the car. He produced a pistol from a paper bag and aimed his weapon with both hands and fired. Donna was struck by one bullet that killed her instantly, and Jody was shot in her thigh and survived her injury. So that was his so first... His first official kill. Mm -hmm. And they both had dark hair, and what we come to find out, you and I... We'd mm -hmm. be up the creek without a paddle because he, I know, I thought about his this. MO, he had several MOs, but one of his MOs was killing women with um, long, dark hair. Because, because it reminded him of his adopted mom. Because mm. she, I think she was, or, or was, I think it was just a weird thing. It was also like he was motivated by never having a relationship. So a lot of times we'll see yeah. he attack people in like lover's lane type yeah. areas. I feel like you see his stuff evolve. Like the first kill or the first attacks were knives that didn't work out. So he moves to guns. Mm -hmm. The first, the first attack with a gun was two girls. And then he starts to move towards more of those lovers people. Mm -hmm. But I read somewhere that they thought that it was for his biological mom because she gave mm. him up and she was like Italian. So oh. she had like the long could dark be. brown hair and he was like mad at her. Could be. Or so it could that's just why be the demon dogs. We would be, we him. would be toast though. So mm -hmm. yeah. On October 23rd, 1976, a similar shooting occurred in a secluded area in Queens next to Bound Park. Uh, David is driving around just looking for people to kill because that's who he is. And he notices two people in a parked car one of them being a dark-headed female. So he's like, mm -hmm. there we that's go. His, that's his, uh, his target. Uh, Carl DeNero, who was a 20-year-old Citibank security guard, and Rosemary Keenan, who was an 18-year-old college student, were sitting in Rosemary's parked car when all of a sudden the window shattered. Uh, obviously, he shot into the car, broke the windows. Rosemary quickly started the car and sped away to the hospital, which, what a good, boss. Good for her. Mm-hmm. Rosemary only had superficial wounds from the glass breaking, but Carl was bleeding from a bullet wound to his head. Carl su survived, but needed a metal plate to replace part of his skull. And that's what I was saying earlier. A lot of these people get shot in the head and live, and I just it, don't get that. Yeah, it blows my mind. But pun, that was, oh, I, did oh, not, I did not mean for I that didn't to be a pun. But wow, yeah. way to go. Snaps but this was you. the first, uh, like, romantic, mm -hmm. like, target that it he was. shot. On November 27, 1976, Donna DeMassey, 16, and Joanne Lomino, 18, were walking home from a movie. They were chatting on the porch of Joanne's home in Floral Park when a man dressed in military fatigues, who seemed to be in his early 20s, approached them and began to ask for directions. However, he quickly pulled a revolver and shot each of the victims once, and as they fell to the ground, he fired several more times. Donna was shot in the neck, but the wound was not life-threatening. Don't understand that. <laughs> Lots of important stuff in your neck. Joanne was hit in the back and hospitalized in serious condition. She survived, but was ultimately rendered paraplegic. So and this was another one of his failed attempts. Um, yeah, I, yeah. we said at the beginning he officially killed six people, but mm -hmm. we've already mentioned well over six people that he, yeah. that he ruined. Yeah, yeah. yeah, attacked. At about 12.40 a.m. on January 30th, 1977, Christine Freund, I don't know how to say that, uh, she was a 26-year-old sec secretary and her fiancé, John Deal, who was a 30-year-old bartender, were sitting in John's car near the Forest Hills LIRR station in Queens. Is that like the subway station? Yeah, or I, railroad, assume, I assume maybe? so. And they were preparing to drive to a dance hall after seeing the movie Rocky. You know, just 
all just 70s things discos rocky movies discos Mm -hmm. three gunshots penetrated the car and in a panic john drove away for help he suffered minor superficial injuries but christine was shot twice and died several hours later at the hospital which is horrible because they were about to get married yeah at about 7.30 p.m. on March 8, 1977, Columbia, Un- this one's really sad, Columbia University student Virginia, I can't pronounce that last name, looks... Moskarichian? Mm-hmm. She was 19, and she was walking home from school when she was confronted by an armed man. She lived about a block from where Christine had passed away, and the one we just talked about. And in a desperate moved to defend herself when he pointed the gun at her she put her textbooks in front of her face and he shot through the textbooks and killed her so they found bullet holes in her textbooks yeah that yeah that is sad um that's not the last one we just keep I know, going i know I was, and i was just thinking these, on. each of these are only like a couple months apart like mm-hmm. you have january march april i mean they just couldn't stop him they couldn't he couldn't stop himself well yeah i guess it's at about 3 a.m. on April 17, 1977, Alexander Esau, who was a 20-year-old trip operator, and Valentina Suriani, who was an, expi- an, asp- an expiring, which, oh, aspiring actress and model. <laughs> Sorry, that's a bad. Freudian slip. Um, they were sitting in Valentina's car near her home in the Bronx, only a few blocks from the scene of the Laria Valenti shooting. So he's always... It's all the same area. Yeah. He's risking risking it. Um, they were each shot twice. Valentina died at the scene, and Alexander died in the hospital several hours later without being able to describe his attacker. But this was the first scene where they found the letter, and it was addressed to the captain of the o- Operation Omega, which was this task force uh, designed to yeah. catch him. Um, Operation Omega sounds intense. I know. Uh, and it was addressed to their captain, Joe Borelli. And it's so like said, straight, straight to him. Mm-hmm. Like just, he knew who, he knew mm-hmm. who was investigating him. He mm-hmm. like knew exactly who to send it to. This, this is about, to I know, I know. I just got weird. this. I just so got the shivers. Here we go. This was the letter. I am deeply hurt by your calling me a women hater spelt W-E-M-A-N. I am not, but I am a monster. I am the son of Sam. I am a little brat. Yep, got that right. Uh, When Father Sam gets drunk, he gets mean. He beats our family. Sometimes he ties me up to the back of the house. Other times he locks me in the garage. Sam loves to drink blood. Go out and kills, commands Father Sam. Behind our house, some rest. Mostly young, raped, and slaughtered. Their blood drained, just bones now. Pop Sam keeps me locked in the attic, too. I can't get out, but I look out the attic window and watch the world go by. I feel like an outsider. I'm on a different wavelength than it in everybody else. See, we do have some insight there mm-hmm. because yes, you are programmed to kill. However, to stop me, you must kill me. Attention, all police! Shoot me first. Shoot to kill, or else keep out of my way, or you will die. Papa Sam is old now. He needs some blood to preserve his youth. He has too many heart attacks. Ugh, me hoot! It hurts, Sonny boy. I miss my pretty princess most of all. She's resting in our lady's house, but I'll see her soon. I am the monster, Beelzebub, the chubby bohemoth. I love to hunt, prowling the streets looking for fair game, tasty meat. The women of Queens are prettiest of all. I must be the water they drink. I live for the hunt, my life. Blood for Papa. Mr. Borelli, sir, I don't want to kill anymore. No, sir, no more, but I must honor thy father. 
I want to make love to the world. I love people. I don't belong on earth. Return me to Yahoo's. To the people of Queens, I love you, and I want to wish you all a happy Easter. May God bless you in this life and in the next, and for now I say goodbye and goodnight. Police, let me haunt you with these words. I'll be back. I'll be back. To be interpreted as bang, 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 ugh. Yours and murder, Mr. Monster. And what that sounds like to me right there is just the whole big schizophrenic mess. I was mess. just about to say the same thing. The stream of consciousness is just the thoughts are rambling. And if you couple that with the fact that he like thought that the dogs were demon possessed and talking mm-hmm. to him and telling him to kill people, like that goes along with the this, whole voices in your head. Just yeah. the rambling and the yeah, that's so much to interpret. Who who There's a, there is a lot there to analyze mm-hmm. the chubby bohemoth. Yeah, psychiatrists who analyzed the letter later assume they assumed that the killer was schizophrenic this is before they met him but same yeah police were able to pick up at this time that the point forty four caliber revol- revolver was being used at each of the crime scenes and at a press conference on march 10th 1977 police announced that the same point forty four caliber pistol had been used in several of the shootings so they're letting the public know because that was like a very like specific kind mm-hmm. of gun like if you know anybody that has one of these yeah hit us up uh, like I said, the Operation Omega Task Force eventually um, was formed, and it had about 300 police officers, and they were in charge of investigating the crimes under the direction of Deputy Inspector Timothy J. Dowd, and police were speculating at this time that a killer had a vendetta against women, perhaps due to chronic rejection. Well, if he was a jerk and bullying kids and setting bugs on fire, I could I could see it. Yeah. Well, and, and just the rejection or quote unquote rejection of his parent, his mother's, you know, mm-hmm. first mother gave him up for adoption. Second mother died. Those mm-hmm. are two different forms of rejection. And then third stepmom he didn't like. Mm-hmm. So it could be part of that too. Yep. On June 26, 1977, there was another shooting. Sal Lupo, a 20 year old mechanics helper and Judy Placido, a 17 year old recent high school graduate had left a disco. All these kids, they were just out living their lives at the disco. They were sitting in Sal's parked car at about 3 a.m., which I have a question. You know all of this is going on. I was just thinking the same thing. This is all in the newspaper, and you're sitting in a car at 3 a.m. I'm not, I'm not victim-blaming, but no, I know. This, I, I thought what the are same you doing? Thing. What we've learned from this is don't go to the disco and sit in your car with your lover at 3 a.m. I don't, like, I get scared if I forget something in my car at night and have to walk out. Same. And I, you know, this neighborhood's pretty safe, safe you know? yeah, same. So they're sitting in their car about 3 a.m. when three gunshots blasted through the vehicle. Sal was wounded in the right forearm while Judy was shot in the right temple, shoulder, and back of the neck. But both victims survived their injuries. Sal told police that the young couple had been discussing the Son of Sam case only moments before the shooting. So you you were discussing Uh -uh. that and you knew about it and And you were sitting in a car with a dark-headed girl at 3 a.m. I read one article or that said somebody had gone was going on a date with somebody, mm-hmm. and they like consciously thought of the fact of like, oh, well, but it's okay because she's a blonde. Mm-hmm. Like, no, oh, we're getting to him. <laughs> I just can't like. Yep. 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 <laughs> On May 30th, 1977, columnist Jimmy Breslin of the New York Daily uh, News, he received a handwritten letter from the shooter. And a week later, after consulting with the police and agreeing to withhold portions of the letter, the Daily News published the letter, and reportedly over 1.1 million copies of that day's paper would be sold. And I'm not going to read you the whole letter, but I have part of it, and it reads... 
Hello from the gutters of NYC, which are filled with dog manure, vomit, stale wine, urine, and blood. Hello from the sewers of New York City, which swallow up these delicacies when they are washed away by the sweeper trucks. Hello from the cracks in the sidewalks of NYC, and from the ants that dwell in these cracks and feed in the dried blood of the dead that has settled into the cracks. Like, like really dark poetry. Mm-hmm. The writer said that he was a big fan of Breslin, and he was quoted as saying, JB, I also want to let you know that I read your column daily and find it quite informative. And then ominously he said, what will you have for July 29th, which was the anniversary of the first point forty four caliber shooting. So, so like he, he like, was going to act that again. He was gonna, yeah. well, and like, he knew that he was going to like write about him. Mm-hmm. Breslin urged the killer to turn himself into police, but the writer didn't listen. So, so this is so this is still at this. So he's the point forty four caliber killer, and now mm-hmm. he's kind of the son of the son of Sam. Yeah. Like they they still, and you've got a three hundred person group that still looking for you. Can't like can't. And find you're you. in the same area. And you're every writing night. letters to people. Yeah. And you're in the same area. Like I just it blows my mind. That's why he was only good for a year before they caught him. I guess. Yeah. His final killings happened in Brooklyn, and on early July 31st, 1977, Stacy Moskowitz, who was a secretary, and Robert Violante was a clothing store salesman. They were in Robert's car, which was parked under a streetlight near a city park in the neighborhood of least, Bath Beach. At least he parked under a light. And they were on their first date. And this is like a, this is what you're referring to. Yeah. Right before they went out for the date, his mom said, be careful. And um, he said, don't worry, she's a blonde. Which is not, because... He only kills people with brown hair. So he thought he was good. Can you imagine, like, going on a date and having to consciously think about that? Mm -hmm. Like, she's a brunette, she's no good. If if I take a brunette, Mm -hmm. like, we're more likely to get attacked. Uh Uh-huh. And then this just so happened to be, like, the first blonde. And that you knew, and that you knew, and it still happened. Mm -hmm. They were kissing when a man approached within three feet of the passenger side of Robert's car and fired four rounds into the car, striking both victims in the head before he escaped through the park. Robert lost his left eye, and Stacy died from her injuries. Because another bullet to the head, and you survive. Yeah, that's crazy. Stacy didn't, which is, I mean, sad, mm-hmm. but it's just, it's crazy. This, the medical part of this is crazy. Mm-hmm. The evening of this shooting... Uh, Cecilia Davis, who lived near the crime scene, she saw a man remove a parking ticket from his yellow Ford Galaxy, and it had been parked in front too or too close to a fire hydrant. She said he looked really distraught and mad, and so she took note of it. And she called the police and told them what she saw. And authorities determined that Berkowitz had been issued the parking ticket. That's so strange that she thought to. Well, I was I'd be pissed if I got a parking ticket too. Wouldn't isn't everybody pissed when they get a parking ticket? So <laughs> I guess I'm, he was overly. And I guess too, if your you know city is being ravaged by a serial killer, you're gonna mm-hmm. like make note of anybody who's upset. Right. But I would yeah. I, mm-hmm. I, I get upset if I get a parking ticket. Because this is this is what a serial killer. This is what it nailed caught him. him. Yeah. Yeah. When they investigated his car parked on the street outside his apartment, police found a rifle in the back seat. They searched the vehicle and found a .44 caliber bulldog pistol along with maps of the crime scenes and a letter to Sergeant Dowd of the Omega Task Force. And when he emerged from the building hours later, Berkowitz was arrested outside his apartment in Yonkers, New York on August 10th, 1977. And his first words upon arrest were, what took you so long? So cocky. And I had the same question. Same. That's what I'm saying. 300 people. Mm -hmm. I think I, I also read that he said finally said something to him like well you got you got me and they were like 
who do we have? Like they were mm-hmm. like wanted him to actually say, and he mm-hmm. said like, you got the son of Sam. That's me. I did it. Yep. Everyone in New York was celebrating. Bars were reportedly giving out free drinks. <laughs> That's such a New York thing. Yeah. Like caught the serial killer mm-hmm. drinks on us. The brunettes were like, yay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Police searched his apartment and found it in a disarray. And it had a cult graffiti all over the walls. They also found a diary wherein Berkowitz took credit for dozens of arsons throughout New York area. So I guess they finally called him for that too. Police were worried that if that they would be challenged in court because they didn't have a search warrant when they got in his car, um, and you and the rifle wasn't illegal in New York City. But to the relief of police, Berkowitz quickly confessed to the shootings, like you said, yeah. and he expressed an interest in pleading guilty in exchange. For for receiving life imprisonment rather than facing the death penalty. He was questioned for about 30 minutes and then confessed to the son of Sam killings. During the initial interviews with police, it was said that Berkowitz never blinked or smiled, but several days later he said that he was feeling depressed and he wanted to talk to a pastor or a chaplain. After this Baptist minister came in and talked to him, that's when he said, I'm ready to confess to these crimes. He was, of course, evaluated by a psychiatrist to see if he was mentally capable to stand trial. And to them, it was simple. They asked him if he would have committed those crimes if police were around, around and the answer was no, meaning he knew he, he action. He knew what he was doing. Yeah. yeah. And he also performed all of these murders in the middle of the night. Right. Or in which nighttime. Was, which, in the cover of, yeah. like, I know this is not right. I got to do it mm-hmm. at nighttime. Yeah. Which... You can still be crazy and not know. And you can know the difference between right or wrong and still be crazy. But uh, Agreed. According to journalist Mari Terry's book, The Ultimate Evil, during his sentencing, Berkowitz repeatedly chanted, Stacy was a whore, at a quiet, though audible volume. And he was referring to the last the female, last the blonde. Yeah. Mm-hmm. His behavior caused an uproar in the courtroom, and it had to be adjourned. And he was sentenced on June 12, 1978, to six life sentences in prison for killing for the killings and that made his maximum term 365 years behind bars which is where he still is Mm -hmm. he later claimed that the hall and oats song rich girl motivated the murders you ever heard that song you're a rich girl oh and you yeah Mm -hmm. uh, is that true or he just that's what he says uh i mean I don't know. That's what makes you beautiful. Could have been the inspiration behind that song. You know what I'm saying? Shout out One Direction. Um, Some of the lyrics to Rich Girl, I I had to look it up because I can't understand anything they're saying. But it says, high and dry, out of the rain. It's easy to hurt others when you can't feel pain. So that's on track. And don't you know that a love can't grow because there's too much to give because you'd rather live for the thrill of it all. So, Okay, that's they probably weren't talking about. Yeah, I know killing people. And, I know Hall Notes is like, man, we were just trying to write like a friendly song, yeah, and yeah. this guy took it and mm-hmm. made it the theme song of his murders. Berkowitz survived at least one attempt on his life by fellow inmate while in prison, and his behavior in prison early on earned him the nickname David Berserkowitz, which that's clever, clever. Yeah. clever. There was a 1979 attack on Berkowitz's life. And that somebody cut his throat, and he refused to identify them and ses- suggested that the act was directed by the cult he once belonged to. He reportedly invited the former priest and exorcist Malachi Martin to visit him to discuss his past occult involvement. He claimed that he did not act alone in the killings. 
Yeah, the, there's a whole like Netflix doc. Did mm-hmm. you see that? There's a whole Netflix documentary called Sons of Sam, mm-hmm. and it 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 takes this claim and kind of like goes along with it, saying right. that like he wasn't the only son of Sam. Mm-hmm. That there were sons of Sam, and there were other people who. I think also if there were it. though, there would be an, would have been a lot more. Yeah. Deaths, so. Yeah. Um, he said that he was a part of an occult group which sacrificed animals to Satan and which ran a child pornography racket. He said that he was not the son of Sam Shooter, but merely one of the many lookout men. And in his claims, he puts the blame on John, also known as Wheaties. That's a weird nickname. John Wheaties' car as one of the shooters, as well as Carr's brother, Michael, who are both Sam, you know, Sam Carr, mm-hmm. his sons. The, the guy who had the mm-hmm. dog. Yeah. Right. So that, that's interesting. Uh, John Carr was killed in February 1978 in a shooting in North Dakota, which was ruled a suicide. I don't know if this was, you know, after the blame and the speculation was put on him. And then his brother, Michael, was killed in a traffic accident. So uh, Berkowitz didn't mention any other names in the interviews, and he claims he cannot reveal any more details as it would endanger his family. So don't know what that means. He's probably going to, like, try and say his dad's involved or something. Well, I feel like that's just displacement of the blame. It's like, yeah. yo, I just can't, can't. Or also, like, you don't have anybody else to blame, and you're just saying, I, I can't name anybody else. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, because nobody else did it. It was you. Berkowitz, like you said, he's still in prison, and I watched several interviews with him, um, recent interviews. He now describes himself as a born-again Christian and says that his obsession with pornography played a major role in these murders. He sent a letter to New York Governor George Pataki asking that his parole hearing be canceled, stating, I can give you no good reason why I should even be considered. And in June 2004, he was denied his second parole hearing after he stated that he did not want one. The board saw that Berkowitz had a good record in the prison programs, but decided that the brutality of his crimes called for him to stay in prison. Uh, yeah. And now he is very involved in prison ministry and regularly counsels troubled inmates. In the interviews I watched, he seems, like, completely normal. And I read a lot of the comments, and I kind of got this, too. Like, he actually, like, looks... And a, cra- a crazy person can, you know, act right. any way they want. But he looks remorseful. Yeah. And Which he, I hope he <laughs> is. I mean... Anybody that says, like, no, I accept my punishment. I deserve yeah, he to be never, in here. Like, yeah. I mean, he pretty quickly, like, was like, I'm going to plead guilty. <laughs> you know, now tried to pull like other people did it as well there are other people who are also guilty but Mm -hmm. he never but i think that's he never said he wasn't like i think he's nixed that he didn't mention that i know that's what i thought like there's some people who just totally don't buy the cult thing Mm -hmm. and you know some people say that he was just making that up and Mm -hmm. you know he's still in prison he's been there for a while and he will be there for a while he'll be there yep 365 years yeah, so you can you can go to the prison where he is. We mm-hmm. always talk about different places we want to visit. You can, mm-hmm. I mean, he is still there. He is in prison. I told you too. I'd share some uh, facts my aunt shared with me. Um, the house, you know, we talked about Sam Carr. Yeah. Um, which was the man who had the dog, who he said was you know demon possessed and telling mm-hmm. him to kill people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the house in front of that apartment building that had the dog uh, just recently sold, and she said she thinks that they used its history as a selling point. That's like all of the houses in New Orleans where they're right, like, like, this house is haunted. And people are like, yeah. People are like, yeah, I like I that. would, no. If they're like, hey, man, like, so, you know, David Berkowitz, <laughs> like, he, he said that this dog was, like, possessed by Satan and told him to kill people. And, like, they lived here or next door or right here. Uh-huh. Would you snatch that up? Right. I wonder if people go out um, to the prison and bark outside the window. Just to mess with them? Mm-hmm. Oh gosh, just, that's you, just me. You ask Grant that. Ooh, ooh, ooh. I know. I will. I'll ask. Uh, definitely, if we go visit, that's what I'm gonna do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Well, that was the Uncle Sam and the son of Sam. You got the uncle, you got the son. Yep. Put it all together, you get a scary tale. You do. It's true. We uh, will, don't worry, we're not going to go on another break, I don't think. We'll be back. Yes, we will be back. Not next week, but the next week. Going to go back to our every other Tuesday. Just took took a little time off. Uh-huh. Um, are and you going to... We'll sprinkle in some, maybe some uh, spooky spots. Maybe some spooky spots. Maybe, maybe some, some tiny, tiny tales. tales. Uh, we got, we got it. We're looking at the lineup right now, which I always, you know, ask Lacey if she wants to tell y'all, but she always likes to surprise y'all. But we got a good lineup. We got a lineup for the rest of the year plan. We do. We got some fairy tales. We got some just other interesting things school is starting for me so we've got some like classic literature Mm -hmm. stories on here that we'll bring you Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um we've also had i've had some people you know reach out and make suggestions somebody just recently just today actually suggested um princess diana no i will not i don't want i i'm way too paranoid and i think the queen will find me and kill me like she did princess diana except i didn't say that because i'm gonna get canceled Oh, see. <sighs> okay. Well, just, just some ideas. If I'm alive by the two next Tuesdays episode, ago, next I'll, yep. I'll, we'll be here and we'll do another episode. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed. See y'all next time. Bye bye.